On the 23rd of March, a bright and sunny day in the year 1885, a huge crowd of angry people took to the streets of Leicester, a city in England's East Midlands region. By any standards, the congregation was enormous, the size of a small army, with up to 100,000 people filling the cobbled avenues and soot-stained boulevards of the Victorian town. They had all gathered in an expression of organised anger to oppose what they regarded as an invasion of their rights and liberties. That is, their right to refuse to be vaccinated. For nearly 30 years, vaccination against smallpox had been made compulsory for every child born in Britain. And over the course of those three decades, opposition to this law had grown steadily. Now it had reached its boiling point and was spilling out onto the streets in dramatic and colourful fashion. One of the protest's organisers, an engineer named John Thomas Briggs, gave the following account of the day, which proceeded with an anarchic, carnival-like atmosphere. After weeks of bitter wind, a beautiful day of sunshine and calm. After years of grim fighting for freedom, a festival of mustering thousands come together from half the counties of England, from scores of towns and cities. Flags everywhere, music everywhere, a perfect carnival of common merriment and common sense, all converging towards the great marketplace of the final town. Briggs even gives an account of the various protest signs and banners that the attendants brought. Parental affection before despotic law. Men of Kent, defend your liberty of conscience. Better a felon cell than a poisoned babe. The crusade against legalised compulsory medical quackery. Jenna's patent has run out. Keep your children's blood still pure. The price of liberty is eternal vigilance. The mothers of England demand repeal. From horse grease, calf lymph, cow puck, and the local government board, good lord deliver us! Some of the attendants had even brought a hearse, decked out with a child's coffin, on which they had inscribed the message, Another victim of vaccination. Another was dressed up as a caricature of a doctor, riding a donkey backwards. And the famous figure of Dr Edward Jenner, who had become renowned for his discovery of the cowpox vaccine nearly 90 years earlier, attracted a particular venom from the crowd. Some attendants had made an effigy of him, a dummy stuck with rags and straw that they proceeded to hang from a portable gallows over and over as they marched through the streets, to the jeering of the gathered crowd. One trolley appeared to have negotiated the loan of a gallows and scaffold from the county jail for Dr. Jenner's sole and particular use, and the execution was carried on without the slightest hitch, about every 20 yards through some miles of streets, amid strong manifestations of popular approval. When the great crowd got to Leicester's main square, they broke into a rendition of the national anthem, and a number of chants went up among the congregation. With many sturdy clouts and wax, Leicester at last will beat the quacks. 
Brothers and hearts united, raise we our voice today. Now let our vow be plighted to sweep this law away. In the excitement, the effigy of Edward Jenner was thrown around the crowd like a beach ball at a concert. Some policemen trying to maintain order tried to take the effigy away from the crowd, and in the scuffle, the dummy's head was pulled off, which Briggs mentions with a note of sarcasm. A second time the constables entered the crowd, and having secured the doctor, solemnly marched him off to the police station, minus his head which had disappeared and could not be found. In the course of less than a century, Edward Jenner had been transformed in the popular imagination to a figure of hatred. Somewhere in the crowd on that sunny day in Leicester, his decapitated head, stuffed with straw, was forgotten, trodden into the muddy ground by the tramping of a thousand feet. The anti-vaccination movement had reached its peak, and the war for the vaccine was now raging. I'm Annie Kelly, and this is Vaccine. This is the story of a campaign against disease, how it was planned and organised, and how the people responded to it. The last battle is being fought now against a terrifying disease for which there is no cure. The means of preventing it, immunization. The world and all its peoples have won freedom. A disease which causes terrible suffering and blindness and which scars for life every person who survives it. The only human disease to be eradicated globally. The greatest public health triumph in history. But let's start from the beginning. To understand how we got to that day in Leicester, with a hundred thousand angry people marching against the life-saving smallpox vaccine, we will have to rewind the clock, almost 60 years, back to the early 19th century while Edward Jenner was still alive. For discovering the vaccine, Jenner enjoyed respect and a relatively high standing in British society. One London journal called The Leisure Hour gives a glowing impression of the relatively peaceful rollout of the vaccine and the accolades granted to its discoverer. Inoculation had paved the way for the new wonder and it was received with less opposition than falls to the lot of many fresh discoveries. The Duke of York introduced the practice of vaccination into the army. It spread through England, was welcomed on the continent in South America, the United States and China, and its beneficent influence has been extending ever since, more and more generally. To mark its appreciation of Dr. Jenner's services, Parliament voted him a sum of £10,000 in 1802 and an addition of £20,000 five years afterwards and the National Vaccine Establishment was instituted to promote the knowledge and extension of them. And so, at length, poison met poison and the virulence of the most destructive was abated. 
the pestilence that had been generated under the fierce sun of Africa and had stalked through the nations to lay them waste met its antidote in the peaceful meadows of Gloucestershire. But from the very moment that the new discovery emerged, we can see the earliest beginnings of the resistance to it. In the year 1802, only six years after Jenner had vaccinated his first patient, a London newspaper published a striking comic condemning the new and frightening medical practice. The comic was entitled The Vaccination Monster. It depicts a group of men, horns sprouting from their heads, shoveling baskets full of babies into the gaping jaws of a hideous creature. In case the image was too subtle for any of the paper's readers, the accompanying text leaves little doubt as to its interpretation. A mighty and horrible monster, with the horns of a bull, the hind of a horse, the jaws of a kraken, the teeth and claws of a tiger, the tail of a cow, all the evils of Pandora's box in his belly, plague, pestilence, leprosy, purple blotches, fetid ulcers and filthy running sores covering his body, and an atmosphere of accumulated disease, pain and death around him, has made his appearance in the world and devours mankind, especially poor helpless infants, not by scores only, or hundreds or thousands, but by hundreds of thousands. This monster has been named Vaccination, and his progressive havoc among the human race has been dreadful and most alarming. Yet, strange to tell, this monster has found not only a multitude of friends, but worshippers who prostrate themselves before him and encourage his voracious appetite. As we explored in the last episode, almost instantly after Dr. Edward Jenner published his report into the immunising effects of cowpox on smallpox, the cowpox vaccine began to replace the older practice of inoculation. Jenner himself set up the world's first free vaccination clinic from his house in Berkeley and dedicated a huge part of his time to correspondence, persuading physicians, rulers and ordinary people all over the world to adopt vaccination, over the riskier and more invasive practice of inoculation. He was so driven by this goal that he wrote the following complaint. On average, I am at least six hours daily with my pen in my hand, bending over writing paper till I'm grown as crocked as a cow's horn and tawny as whey butter. In many ways, Jenna was battling human nature, or that aspect of our nature that causes us to be afraid of change. Although the old method of inoculation could be dangerous and unpredictable, to those who had grown up with it, it at least felt familiar, and for many, the fact that the cowpox vaccine originated from a virus found in animals lent it an air of the grotesque and disgusting, even morally obscene. It was these ideas that cartoons like The Vaccination Monster played upon. On the 12th of June 1802, another satirical cartoonist named James Gilray 
published an illustration showing an imagined scene at St. Pancras Smallpox and Inoculation Hospital in London. The image shows a haughty doctor vaccinating a group of people one after another, each with a look of disgust and revulsion on their faces. While, to the right of him, patients who have undergone the procedure are erupting into horrible mutations. Cow horns are sprouting on some, while small cattle are erupting as growths, pustules and tumours from others. One lady even seems to have a calf being birthed from her open mouth. It can sometimes be tempting to view those who resisted the introduction of vaccination as simply ignorant or backwards, motivated by this kind of simple revulsion. But from the moment that vaccination was first introduced, it faced resistance from some of the most prominent and established corners of society. It was demonised in the press and decried by politicians. From our vantage point far in the future, it's clear that the eradication of smallpox was among the greatest achievements in human history, like the building of the pyramids or men walking on the moon. It seems hard to believe that so many ordinary people at the time could have fought so hard to prevent it. But in this episode, I want to try and get inside the heads of those who opposed early vaccination efforts and see if we can try to see things from their point of view. Just as we see today, things were not always so obvious to people at the time, and even the strongest supporters of the vaccine in the 1800s could hardly have imagined a world where the tyranny of smallpox was actually ended for good. Some had a great financial incentive to condemn the new treatment. Since the introduction and acceptance of inoculation, some inoculators had grown wealthy administering the treatment, and their livelihoods were now directly threatened by the new method of vaccination. One 1808 coloured etching celebrates Edward Jenner and his fellow vaccinationists seeing off these inoculators with the words, Surely the disorder of the cow is preferable to that of the ass. At the time that images like the vaccination monster were being published in London newspapers, Vaccines were still less than a decade old. They were as new to people as Bitcoin or TikTok are to us today. And many members of the public had bitter memories of quack doctors selling them fraudulent cures for the disease. One such doctor was Robert James, an English physician who patented a brand of medicinal powders that claimed to have curative effects for virtually any disease. For cough, for gout, for smallpox, for everything. In order to keep his formula secret, James submitted a fake recipe for his powder on the patent documentation. James's actual concoction, a compound of antimony and phosphate of lime, was actually toxic to humans and has been linked to the deaths of several people, such as the playwright Oliver Goldsmith. This was an age when reliable information was scarce, and scepticism was actually a pretty sensible method for survival. Those who jumped on every medical bandwagon to ride through town could end up taking any number of useless powders, unctions and ointments. And in the worst cases, they could be ingesting toxic substances like arsenic and mercury. 
part of the problem may have been that vaccinations simply sounded too good to be true and reminded people of the cure-all claims of snake oil salesmen like Dr. James. And even the most respected scientific figures in this age weren't immune from quackery. Edward Jenner himself had even experimented by treating people with tartar emetic, a toxic substance similar to Dr. James's powders that was then used as a medicine for various ailments. Another major factor was the lack of trust that people had in authorities like the medical establishment and the government. This was the age of public hangings, a time when everyone from petty criminals to political prisoners could be deported to penal colonies in Australia for what today would be considered petty crimes. And to try to reduce the problem of vaccination scepticism, the Victorian-era British government did what they knew best. They cracked down on it with the full force of the law. In the year 1840, the British government moved to outlaw the old practice of inoculation with the first Vaccination Act of 1840. This act also provided free vaccinations for the poor. Just over a decade later in the year 1853, the laws got harsher. Now parents who failed to vaccinate their children would be subject to a harsh fine. This fine would be about £130 or nearly $200 today, about a month's wages for a skilled labourer in 1850. People working in so-called semi-skilled or unskilled positions earned even less. Just as we see in modern times, with medical debt in countries like the United States hitting the poorest in society the hardest, vaccination fines were experienced as unfair and unequal punishments. But the government became increasingly frustrated at the slow uptake of the vaccination among the urban poor, as one report from the board of the vaccine establishment bemoans. The protective power of vaccination was still so much neglected as to permit a frightful amount of mortality from smallpox in the United Kingdom. And the British government began looking to other neighbours in Europe to discover new ways to encourage vaccine uptake, as the following report in the journal The Leisure Hour in the year 1854 recalls. The continental states have various methods of enforcing vaccination, some as Prussia, Bavaria and Hanover by fines or imprisonment, others by requiring the production of a certificate, testifying the success of the operation, from apprentices, servants, candidates for admission into public schools, almshouses, etc. Zealous public vaccinators are rewarded with gold and silver medals in France and Belgium. In Austria, no child is allowed to attend either public or private schools, and no person is permitted to seek relief from the charity boards without having been vaccinated. In Denmark, we find it stated on the highest medical authority that variola had at one time disappeared from the defensive influence of compelled vaccination, though it is added that chance and a careless security engendered by the absence of the pest have led to its reintroduction there. In 1867, the British government strengthened its powers against those refusing the vaccine. A new decree declared that all children below the age of 14 must take the smallpox vaccine, and doctors who registered the birth of a child had to report it to the government so that a notice of vaccination could be sent to their family. 
In terms of increasing vaccination, it's undeniable that these laws were successful. By 1860, around two-thirds of newborn children were vaccinated, saving many thousands of lives. But in terms of public relations, this heavy-handed approach backfired enormously. Among the people of Britain, these new laws were immensely unpopular. So much so that many local authorities simply refused to enforce the fines, preferring to turn a blind eye to the poor families in their constituencies. But the government didn't sense the signs of danger. To try to remedy this situation, in the year 1871, they made the laws even more draconian. Now, the government could punish the officials themselves if they didn't issue penalties. The law also stated that anyone found practicing the outdated method of inoculation could be imprisoned for up to a month. And it seems that the harsher the laws became, the greater the resistance to vaccination was. In some parts of the country, this resistance was sometimes violent, even sparking riots in cities like Ipswich that lasted several days. And the anti-vaccinators themselves were becoming increasingly organised. An organisation that called themselves the Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League was founded in 1867. The League soon began printing a newsletter, which included the following seven-point mission statement on the masthead. 1. It is the bounden duty of Parliament to protect all the rights of man. 2. By the Vaccination Acts, which trample upon the rights of parents to protect their children from disease, Parliament has reversed its function. 3. As Parliament, instead of guarding the liberty of the subject, has invaded this liberty by rendering good health a crime, punishable by fine or imprisonment, inflicted on dutiful parents, Parliament is deserving of public condemnation. Just as in India, British people's resistance to vaccination came from a mixture of both conspiratorial fears and much more grounded concerns. It's perfectly true that the vaccine wasn't without its risks. A report by the Registrar-General looking at deaths from 1881 to 1895 showed that on average 52 individuals a year had died from complications as a result of vaccination. Medical practice at the time was imperfect, often messy, and conducted in less than ideal conditions in the smoky slums of Victorian cities. And occasionally, the practice of arm-to-arm -arm vaccination could transfer other diseases, like syphilis. And the practice wasn't painless either. Doctors would use a lancet, a small surgical knife, to cut lines into the flesh of the arm before smearing cowpox matter into the cuts. New mothers and fathers would no doubt find it quite a distressing sight, watching a doctor do this to their newborn baby. And when our parental instinct to protect our little ones kicks in, we're not always known for our rational responses. And of course, as with today, there was a large and profitable industry of anti-vaccination activism, who delighted in seizing on any and every story of vaccinations gone wrong. To them, 
Every botched vaccination was proof of the inherent dangers of bodily contamination and blood pollution. And as time went on, the methods that these groups used to spread their message became more sophisticated. Such groups and their tactics were not exclusive to the United Kingdom. A doctor's report on smallpox vaccination in Sweden noted the prevalence of misinformation about the practice across all classes. The most strange prejudices and fears of vaccination predominate, not only among the working classes, but also among other social classes, where one could hope to find more intelligence. As grounds, they bring up the most extraordinary rumors, such as that, as a result of vaccination, people have gotten gangrene in the arm and been forced to amputate it, that infectious diseases have been injected that the vaccine used is unfit and unhealthy, and finally, that most childhood diseases are caused by it. And as with today, the anti-vaccination movement used a variety of media to get their message across. In the crowded music halls and pubs of Victorian cities, they spread the music and words for anti-vaccination songs, which could be sung in groups. These songs contained all the themes that had become a mainstay of this movement. The foolishness of doctors, the importance of freedom, the idea of the body remaining pure from pollution. The following is an authentic English anti-vaccination song that replaced the lyrics of a well-known music hall song, designed to be sung by a group of drunken revellers. Here it is, performed by Dr Oscar Cox Jensen, a researcher into the history of English protest songs. I sing a great discovery, the greatest air was known, sir. So far beyond old-fashioned ways of letting well alone, sir. All evils are now but a joke, we smile at more taxation. East winds, dear colds, so long as we can get our vaccination. Bow, wow, wow, to putrefy the blood is all the go just now. Our doctors, they know everything, at least we have been taught so. When they said bleeding saved our lives, of course, we always thought so. And when, some years ago, they took pains to preserve the nation, we followed suit to them and went bang for inoculation. Bow, wow, wow, to putrefy the blood is all of the go just now. Next, calomel was all the rage, our systems it was so hoped in. Then scores of drugs of dire effect, we all were nearly choked in. But all at once it burst upon MD's imagination, that what we were all wanting was simply a vaccination. Wow, 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 to purify the One of the Anti-Vaccination League's most influential messaging strategies would be its publications and journals, to which many famous writers and politicians contributed. One such journal was called The Vaccination Inquirer, established by a successful businessman named William Tebb. William Tebb was the very picture of an eccentric Victorian business magnate. His long hair combed and pomaded, 
a thick beard and a propensity for velvet suits and checkered bow ties. For his time, he was a worldly political radical who had travelled to the United States to promote the interests of the newly founded Vegetarian Society, which promoted the novel idea of eating a meat-free diet. While in the United States, Teba also became involved in the abolitionist movement against slavery, before returning to England in the 1860s and devoting himself to various humanitarian and anti-animal cruelty causes. He even wrote a number of books advising on how to avoid the risk of being buried while still alive, with titles like the following. Premature burial, and how it may be prevented, with special reference to trance, catalepsy, and other forms of suspended animation. Teb was a man who delighted in a cause, and for him, his staunch anti-vaccination campaign was no different. In fact, he connected the struggle against vaccination with the ongoing campaign against slavery, believing them to be almost part of the same struggle. While in the United States, he especially stressed this connection, in the hopes of persuading his audience of largely northern liberals. In no part of England has submission been so rigorously enforced as in the English metropolis where, in addition to the energetic efforts of vaccination officers and public vaccinators, stimulated by special awards, there has been inquisitorial house-to-house and school-to-school visitation. The remorseless cowpoxing in the workhouses, even of infants, scarcely a week old. The hunting of unvaccinated fugitives from parish to parish, like slave hunting in the United States and the relentless prosecution of the parents of unvaccinated children in every police court in the metropolis. Teb's comparison of chattel slavery and vaccination is likely to strike many of us as offensive, but it is in many ways emblematic of how the wealthier side of the anti-vaccination movement saw themselves, as warriors fighting for principles of liberty. To them, The vaccine mandates posed questions about the purpose and the limits of government, questions which still don't have easy answers today. Questions like, if something is an obvious public good, is it justified to force the public into doing it? If so, how much force can you apply before they start to push back? But while the anti-vaccination movement had plenty of wealthy supporters, In the 1800s, the movement was made up primarily of the working classes, and for them, the struggle was much more personal. For the British urban and working poor, the government was rarely a benevolent or trustworthy entity. Throughout most of the 19th century, only 11% of adult men could vote, and if you were working class, you had no form of political representation. You were completely at the mercy of predatory capitalists who owned the mines and factories you worked in, the shops you depended on, and also the houses you lived in. And this bitter antagonism could sometimes erupt into bloody violence. In August of the year 1819, a peaceful crowd of 60,000 working-class people from the towns and villages of what is now the Greater Manchester area marched to a place called St. Peter's Field to demand the vote for all men. Manchester's local government was made up of the very same wealthy landowners who were being protested against, 
they urged their local cavalry militia, along with a number of army reserves, to crush the meeting. The horsemen charged into the crowd of civilians with sabres drawn, as if facing an opposing army in the Napoleonic War. The Reverend Edward Stanley later wrote about the scenes that unfolded. Their sabres glistened in the air. They soon increased their speed, and with a zeal and ardour which might naturally be expected from men acting with delegated power, continued their course, seeming individually to vie with each other who should be first. As the cavalry approached the dense mass of people, they used their utmost efforts to escape, but so closely were they pressed in opposite directions by the soldiers, the special constables, the position of the hustings, and their own immense numbers, the immediate escape was impossible. Dozens were killed and hundreds injured in the panic. The massacre was given the sarcastic name Peterloo, and for generations afterwards scar the memory of the British working class. While resistance to vaccination may seem like an unreasonable position today, for the people who still remembered these kinds of atrocities, who lived every day with the shadow of deportation or the hangman's noose over their heads, herded into slums, it was often hard to believe that the government had anything like their best interests at heart. For the working classes, the 19th century had already seen an unprecedented expansion of state intervention into their lives. This included things like increased data gathering, such as censuses and birth and death registrations, but it also included morally imposed, coercive intrusions. The government engaged in heavy-handed policies like slum clearance and the workhouse system. The poor were not treated as human, but as some kind of herd to be corralled and controlled. And for many people who resented being treated in that way, compulsory vaccination was just another example of the state's intrusive hand. This was not helped by how the precarious lives of the poor were often used as a weapon against them in order to force them into vaccinating. In Gloucester in the 1890s, the local government tried to install a policy that became known as vaccination or starvation. Those who refused to be vaccinated would lose their jobs, and in an age when welfare was virtually non-existent, their families would be at risk of starving to death. What's more, as in so many cases, the law was applied unevenly. The working classes were much more likely to be fined for non-compliance with vaccination laws while local officers looked the other way for those from more respectable professions. For this reason, the growing movement of working-class consciousness and labour organising was often tied up in resistance to vaccination. Fierce pockets of resistance often sprang up in places where the unions were strongest. One example is the Midland Railway Company, whose employees threatened to strike if a compulsory vaccination policy was instituted, the campaign succeeded and the plans were dropped. And so, it's no coincidence that the protest we opened this episode with took place in the city of Leicester. Leicester was a heavily industrialised city in the Midlands and would become one of the most central hubs for this form of activism. In the city, 
the number of prosecutions for refusal to vaccinate a child skyrocketed. In 1869, the year the Anti-Vaccination League was set up, only two people were prosecuted, but 15 years later in the year 1884 alone, the number would be 3,000. Figures for the second half of 1883 showed that in Leicester of 2,281 births, barely more than 700 new babies were vaccinated. The local league was not in favour of simply letting the disease run its course. In fact, they would come to promote alternative methods to controlling smallpox, which involved practices very familiar to us today – isolation, quarantine, and disinfecting areas the patient had been in contact with. This became known as the Lester Method, and was promoted by advocates with the slogan Sanitation, not vaccination. The method had such support from the people of Leicester that in 1884, local authorities sent a written request to London asking for permission to ease prosecutions. When it was denied, the city erupted into the mass demonstrations that opened this episode. Copies of the law were burned in the streets and effigies of doctors were lynched. The Leicester Mercury gave the following report. By about 7.30, a goodly number of anti-vaccinators were present, and an escort was formed, preceded by a banner, to accompany a young mother and two men, all of whom had resolved to give themselves up to the police and undergo imprisonment in preference to having their children vaccinated. The utmost sympathy was expressed for the poor woman, who bore up bravely, and expressed her determination to go to prison again and again, rather than give her child over to the tender mercies of a public vaccinator. The three were attended by a numerous crowd, and in Gallow Tree Gate three hearty cheers were given for them, which were renewed with increased vigour as they entered the doors of the police cells. In 1898, nearly 50 years after the first vaccination penalties were introduced, the British government caved in to the pressure. They introduced a clause to the law that allowed for conscientious objection on religious grounds, effectively ending compulsory vaccination in Britain. By the end of the year, over 200,000 certificates had been issued, allowing people to forego vaccination. An amended conscientious objection clause was passed in 1907, making the status even easier to attain. Among those dedicated to eradicating smallpox, the bill seemed like a disaster, with opponents mocking it as the bill for the encouragement of smallpox. But what's most curious is that it seems this loosening of the law may have actually contributed to a gradual decline in vaccine scepticism. Smallpox vaccination was no longer about governmental control, but about personal control, and there would be no more great rallies like the one that took place in Leicester. It also helped that the government began to listen to public complaints and fears about vaccination spreading diseases like syphilis and leprosy. Parliament in 1898 decreed that all vaccine lymph had to be produced in the bodies of cows, the original reservoir of cowpox. Patients could ask their doctors specially for arm-to-arm -arm vaccination, but otherwise it was illegal. These kinds of policies eased public concerns, and resistance to the vaccine gradually ebbed away.
It is perhaps the greatest tragedy of this story that the miracle of vaccination was so mishandled by authoritarian governments. How so rapidly after its invention, the smallpox vaccine became associated in the minds of the very people it could help the most with power, control and subjugation. From the colonised peoples of India and Kenya to the oppressed working classes of Britain itself, the vaccine began to feel like just another form of control, imposed from above against their wishes. In 1854, one anti-vaccinationist put this in simple terms. Are we to be leached, bled, blistered, burned, frozen, pilled, potioned, lotioned, salivated, all by act of parliament? It seems unsurprising that those who would resist these laws most fiercely were those who were already so downtrodden. And as the 19th century drew to a close, and the promise and horror of the 20th century drew into view, a new possibility began to be mentioned, quietly at first, but with increasing hope and confidence. The possibility that smallpox, the scourge of mankind for thousands of years, the destroyer of countless millions of lives all over the world, could not just be controlled, not just be tamed, but could actually finally be eradicated. This possibility seemed so fragile, so delicate, that for decades it would be mentioned as just a dream, a figment of science fiction. Even in the final years of the effort, there remained those who insisted it couldn't be done. But the final round of this great fight was just about to begin. You've been listening to Vaccine. I'd like to thank my voice actors, Doug MacDonald, Peter Walters, Lachlan Lucas, Darren Oliver, Jake Barrett-Mills, Paul Cooper, Ivan Mariello, Ree Brignall and Nick Denton. Our Victorian crowd were Joe McCarney, Miranda Mungai, Cleo Madeline and Blythe Ameson. Special thanks go to Dr Oscar Cox Jensen for his vocal rendition of the anti-vaccination song, Vaccination. Oscar's research, entitled Our Subversive Voice, The History and Politics of the English Protest Song, is an ongoing project at the University of East Anglia. The music was compiled by Pavlis Kapralis, with Diane Ashton on the accordion. This series wouldn't be possible without the hard work of our academic team, Dr Agnes Arnold Forster, Kristen Brigortiz, and Dr Gareth Millwood at the University of Birmingham, who acted as a special consultant. Vaccine is an independent show, and we prefer not to disrupt our show with advertising and sponsorship. It can only survive with the generous support of our listeners. If you enjoyed Vaccine, please consider heading to www.patreon.com forward slash vaccine podcast to contribute something and support the production of more quality historical programming. For now, goodbye, and thanks for listening. Bow, wow, wow. 
to putrefy the blood is all the go just now. I know our doctors, everyone, are quite disinterested, as you in your experience, no doubt, often have tested. Uh, but yet, I can't help saying still, so leads my cogitation. But for the fees, the devil, he might take the vaccination. Bow, wow, wow, to putrefy the blood is all of the go just now. We only ask to have fair play, nor would we crush another. We wish to judge but for ourselves, nor answer for our brother. If blood, as God created it, needs some adulteration, why poison yours? But don't make me a prey to vaccination. Bow, wow, wow, to putrefy the blood is all the go just now.